in the beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. guest is Dungsala Jampal Norbu. He's part of the new generation of Tibetan Buddhist teachers. His mother is an American longtime student of Tibetan Buddhism. His father, Zigar Kontrul Rinpoche, is Tibetan. And Dungsala will be leading a weekend retreat this weekend on remaining natural in Dharma practice, and that is this coming weekend, this September 28th and 29th in Verscher, here in Vermont. Dungsala, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Pleasure to be here. So to begin with, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Colorado mostly, in uh, Boulder County, but also uh, a great deal of that time, I grew up in southern Colorado in the San Luis Valley in a small town called Crestone, just by the Sand Dunes National Monument. And Crestone is an interesting place. It's formerly a peace ground for different Native American traditions. And at this time, it is one of the great spiritual centers of the United States and uh, certainly of Colorado, as it is a town with many different spiritual traditions closely concentrated in one space. Uh, 
with uh, ashrams, temples, monastic communities, uh, churches, and I grew up there for about 10 years, and my parents moved out there to establish another spiritual community, and from there I went to middle school and then on to high school and boarding school, and around the time I started finishing high school, I had the opportunity to either go on to a formal university education or travel to India and undertake a more serious line of study with Tibetan Buddhism. And I chose to go to India and to pursue the study of Buddhism as a as a means of finding confidence in life and developing a spiritual path. So I'm really curious about your upbringing and what it was like growing up with your parents and what your home life was like with, with both a mother and father who were so devoted and dedicated to the Buddhist practice. Mm. Well, for me, it, uh, it seems actually quite normal. I didn't realize there was anything unusual about my situation until perhaps I started going to high school and I could see the, the difference between myself and the situation that other people had grown up in. Yeah, so I'm, ve- for, I'm, I'm very curious <laughs> about that, that experience, that that experience of contrast that well I suppose that when I went to boarding school I didn't so much compare myself to other people individually as much as I felt like I stepped into a new environment of more conventional environment and a lot of the familiar settings that I had grown up with, the emphasis on spiritual meditation, the emphasis on practice and, and prayer and meditation was not emphasized, but the values surrounding analytical analysis was still there. There's a great deal of analysis and discriminating intelligence, which is emphasized in the Buddhist tradition, and particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that I've grown up in. And that was certainly reflected in the many sciences and classes that I attended, and so I really thrived in, in that particular area. My high school had a senior elective of philosophy, and I think that that is where I really uh, enjoyed myself the most in my, my time in high school, as far as my classes went. 
but it was an odd shift coming from um, more nuclear family and uh, also having somewhat of an extended family with a Dharma community and the other practitioners who study with my father and with my mother to being in a high school community, which was more my own, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So in our culture, most children, as they grow towards adulthood and into adulthood, go through a process of individuation, which usually includes a fair amount of rebelliousness. My impression is that from your from your home life and the community that you were brought up in, that that may not have been a part of your experience. Is that is that so? Well, I can't necessarily claim that I haven't been rebellious or uh, at least stubborn. <laughs> I think my parents would still uh, claim that I have some strong, stubborn streaks uh, within me. But when it comes to being a rebel against my parents' beliefs uh, or the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, I really had nothing to rebel against in many ways. There's a great deal of personal choice, which comes along with being a practitioner. The process of meditation and study, which leads to the self-awakening of enlightenment, which has been passed on from uh, Buddha Shakyamuni through 2,500 years of Dharma down to our present time. The entirety of that tradition is focused on self-inspiration of practice. So my father has never said that I had to practice. I was never told that I must be a Buddhist. It was really my own choice, and it has always been my own choice, and that was emphasized. And so when it's a matter of choice, there's really very little to rebel against in that way. And my parents have always been quite good about laying out my options and making that choice mine or showing me that this is my life and these are my choices, but there's still still a level of cause and effect there. If I go this route, then such and such will happen, or if I go this route, then such and such will happen, and the choice is mine. So in that way, there's not a whole lot to rebel against. Maybe my my most rebellious phase comes to cleaning my room or <laughs> eating my vegetables, but even then, it's uh, a matter of choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. And hoping I make the healthy <laughs> choice. So when you when you uh, refer to your your stubbornness, is that what you meant? You cleaning your room, 
eating yes things like so it didn't did it go beyond that much well i find that stubbornness is not is not something we can express all the time um, the rebellious phase of life we look for things to push up against we look for opportunities to assert our individuality or to assert our difference from our parents or our peers and to test the limits. Um, children do this at all ages, kind of testing the boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not, what someone can get away with. I was uh, supposedly very naughty when I was younger, always testing the limits. But after a certain period of time and learning about cause and effect, I can't touch a hot stove without feeling the repercussions of that. If you touch something hot, then it's going to be hot. It's going to be a burn. So in that way, we live and we learn. And really, it says something about my parents giving me a great deal of choice and freedom in making decisions in my own life that the most contentious part of uh, my upbringing was probably around cleaning my room. Well, that's really wonderful that, that you had that kind of an upbringing. I don't hear stories like that from hardly anybody that I've known in my life. And I didn't, I was a very stubborn child. And it's it's funny how you you mentioned that you were considered naughty when you were very young, and I think that's kind of interesting because as children, you could say that that's our job as a child is is to explore and and explore the boundaries and the limits, and the only way we can do that is is really by by testing them and and pushing them and seeing how far they go so to call it naughty is is uh, <laughs> is a funny way of characterizing it yes naughty by conventional standards but uh, to a, a child it's joyful exploration yes and and essential for um exploring the world Mm-hmm. I'm I'm very lucky I didn't have the the helicoptering type parents. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would say you had a a very enviable um, upbringing and parents. Most I I'd say because of the ins the basic insanity of our of this Western culture, most of our parents um, suffered from that much as as most of the rest of us westerners have suffered from from the the traumas of you know the psychological and emotional traumas of growing up in a a materialist culture a culture that mm-hmm. that that willfully separates ourselves from the natural world and and actually sees ourselves as human beings as being superior to the natural world and and separate from it, which 
which is a very unfortunate state of affairs. And, and it's really coming to a head at this point in our history where we're going to have to make a very clear, conscious choice about how we deal with that in order oh, yes. to survive. Yes, I believe today is the day of one of the great climate marches of the year or uh, climate change school walkout. It's certainly evident in our our current atmosphere that if nothing else, it is important that we assess our attitudes around how we how open we are to our environment and how much we acknowledge how our environment is also a part of us and our life and not distinguish so sharply between self and other and to extend our own care and concern for our life and our comfort and our situation to include others and to include the world as well. And that is the basis for Buddhist meditation and Buddhist philosophy and extending compassion and care to the whole world is not just beneficial for others, but it's also beneficial for ourselves. It's how we live in harmony with sanity. So how does your particular Buddhist tradition and lineage address that, particularly in this Western culture where most of your students are, if not all of them, are Westerners? Mm-hmm. Well, growing up in the West, I, I like to think of myself as being more Tibetan, but in truth, I, I would say I'm more Western in, uh, in culture and in maybe my mannerisms than I am uh, Tibetan. So it's, it's really not so unusual for me to feel the pull of the, the modern world or the Western culture. And there's such a strong history of education and analytical reasoning in uh, Western academia and Western culture, which fits very well with Buddhism and, and particularly Tibetan Buddhism and uh, Mahayana logic and and so on. But there is also that materialist aspect which tends to emphasize the self above others or competition over cooperation. And some of those, some of the downsides of that way of living, the downsides of a materialist culture and a self-oriented culture uh, is very easily summed up in one of the great Buddhist texts coming out of, um, coming out of Asia, 
and that is in the Way of the Bodhisattva by Noble Shantideva, who writes, all the suffering the world contains comes from wishing happiness only for oneself. All the joy the world contains comes from wishing happiness for others. And I think in summary, that's really the crux of the matter. It's not that that wisdom is inaccessible to a Western mind or that there is any gigantic difference between uh, East or the West or the pre-modern and the modern uh, or contemporary cultures. It's really just our attitude and what we have come to emphasize and what we have come to take for granted. And if we are able to shake loose our mm, our uh, <laughs> strong set of preferences, if we're able to shake loose our complacency and come out of our comfort zone a little bit, then we open ourselves up to a far different world, which is full of potential for joy and and also freedom, freedom from living in a way which promises happiness, but is really just false advertising. Yes, the uh, the quote unquote American dream. Mm-hmm. And going along with with what you were talking about, there's there's this huge emphasis upon the intellect and the head and largely a disregard of the heart and and the notions of the experience of compassion and and kindness and and love for for all things is is not something that you can experience in a meaningful way intellectually that's something that you we have to we have to experience directly through the heart. And for a culture that is so based in the head and often quite stuck in the head and disregarding the heart, how, how, do, we, how do we shift, how do we make that shift to include the heart into the equation? Because it's not about disregarding the head or the intellect, but, but finding a way to to integrate the two and, and create perhaps balance or, or, or wholeness. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we accomplish that considering um, the challenge of, of Western culture that has been, you could say, in effect for, for millennia? Well, I feel that the the emphasis on intellectualism or um, or on academia is, is quite strong in, in the Western world, but there are also strong pockets of traditional based uh, traditionally based 
faith and um, charity and compassion towards others. So I wouldn't say that the Western world is devoid of that, but certainly it's not emphasized so much in modern culture and uh, more capitalistic <laughs> view of uh, of the way the the world works. And I think that it it boils down to a false sense of objectivity and. Certainly there are, there are some points that we can all agree on, but we, we don't take a great deal of time to self-reflect, to pause, to slow down from the busyness of life and the, the speed of the rat race, <laughs> to, to use that term. Uh, we don't slow down enough to even contemplate the internal workings of our own mind and to be in touch with our own sense of well-being and uh, and to also consider how others fit into that picture and how that may also affect the well-being of others. To examine our own mind, we see that we also seek out kindness, we also seek out happiness, and to see that that is also apparent in others, to see that others other people are just like us, that all beings want happiness, that all beings want to be free from suffering, then there is that common ground, there is that common basis for compassion towards others, for equanimity, for loving kindness, and to rejoice in others' happiness, for sympathetic joy. And it doesn't necessarily come just from an intellectual perspective. It takes that personal self-reflection to find the heart connection with other people. And when there is that heart connection, when there is that deep personal experience um, born out of self-reflection, then there's a lot more common ground to develop a compassionate practice. And within the tradition of Buddhism, there there are teachings referencing the two wings which take someone on the path to enlightenment or on the path to freedom. And those two wings are wisdom and compassion. You can't fly with just one wing. You can't fly with just the intellect or the understanding of how things are. It also takes the, the practice of compassion and the tender heart which opens up to all beings and sees the common ground that we all share as living beings, not just as Americans or humans or uh, or otherwise, but as living beings. But it also takes the understanding as well. It's not just a matter of blind compassion. It takes that guiding focus of wisdom and seeing what benefits, seeing how we can best apply our intention, how we can utilize our, our skills uh, and skillfully walk a, a path of meaning and, and social harmony. 
So is the spiritual unfolding or awakening process a natural occurrence in our lives, or is it something that needs to be cultivated? Personally, I feel like there are many pockets of experience where we do experience direct understanding of grace or ease or uh, peace of mind. We do have moments of great compassion and uh, kindness and it's proven how people can come together uh, after natural disasters or in uh, times of unrest, how that care can be extended. I think there are qualities of both compassion and wisdom which appear here and there uh, in life, but it is also something that needs to be cultivated in order to make it stable. This is something which is not uh, fabricated from the outside. It's not something false or something unnatural to us, but we live in such a way that we are constantly distracted as well. So it does take some cultivation. The the iPhone, for instance, is or smartphones in general. Uh, it's not necessarily a natural, naturally occurring phenomena. It's uh, a bit of a distraction. And as uh, as wonderful as it can be, it can often distract us from what is natural and uh, inherent within us. So it's truly just a matter of conditions. We break our attachment or we break our habits to staring at our screens and uh, we have screen time monitoring apps now which tell us when we've looked at something too long. And I think that we train ourselves. We train ourselves to be natural. It's not easy being natural. We're often distracted from being natural. And it takes some serious, quote-unquote, reprogramming to come back to that uh, baseline, to come back to that ground where all the habits of a lifetime and all the habits of a culture fall away and we can really experience our own natural state of mind directly without the need for fidget spinners or uh, distractions or FOMO, fear of missing out. And we can be friends with ourselves and we can enjoy our own natural state of mind without external input. So it does take training. And that is a, a big part of the Buddhist path as well. There are many texts online training as well. There's the Lojong text, for instance, which literally means the mind training text. And it focuses on breaking habitual tendencies and cultivating good qualities. So there's that emphasis, for sure. Well, that's a huge area to get into this notion of, of dealing with, with our old habits and attachments, because m- most 
most of our habits and ways of thinking and believing began before, you know, in our early years, before we had the the skill of of self inquiry and 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 rigorously questioning the things that we were literally soaking up like like sponges and mm-hmm. and so this this inquiry that that we have to do um working with with the contents of our mind and could you talk about all of that and and what we what we really need to be doing and and the basic process especially considering um that in the west here we we're we're living in a in a in a pretty crazy world and with modern technology being as distracting as as it is it it can be quite challenging to to deeply go inside and and find the space and time to really settle into that experience that direct experience without getting mm-hmm. continually distracted and if we're getting continually distracted while we're trying to get there it can be it can seem for some to be almost impossible to even find a way in mm-hmm. well <laughs> that's quite a lot to dive into but um, I can as I, I feel there are some, some strong points uh, throughout the entirety of Buddhist path I I know there's a great deal which can seem strange or intimidating or uh, overly complex uh, to to someone who is who has experience or who has no experience in uh, Buddhism or Buddhist philosophy, and there's a great deal that is fascinating and interesting throughout the the many traditions. But personally, I do see a great some of the greatest benefit being at the very beginning when the Buddha first taught his first teachings on suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to end of suffering. And suffering is not really a sexy topic. It's something we actually uh, avoid uh, talking about or we just want to avoid in general. So it's not, it's not as an attractive aspect is maybe uh, so many other parts of, of Buddhist uh, philosophy and, and practice, but it is one of the most essential, and that is why it is at the very beginning. We do inherit the qualities of our world or the viewpoints of our world when we are young, as you said, we soaked up like a sponge. There are other qualities that we inherit over lifetimes. Qualities, uh, misunderstandings, tendencies that even come from previous lives. The 
the basic rule of cause and effect is that all causes lead to an effect, and all effects have a cause. All actions have a result, and all actions have a source. For us to be born in this situation, for us to be born in this time, for us to be born with this body, uh, to be born with so many specific conditions and and genes and uh, and genetics in general, there has to be a cause for it. And uh, where where is the cause for that? We we speak of previous lives in that case, but because we have so many conditions that we live with, because we are born in a time which is distracting that uh, focuses on materialism over the internal awareness of the mind. Sometimes I just think when we acknowledge that there is suffering in the world, that is an incredible first step to acknowledge that there is something happening. That is a tremendous first step to say that there is no uh, warming of the planet, to say that there is no uh, change in the climate, why would anyone talk about climate change? There has to be at least some acknowledging of, of that point for there to be any call to action, for someone to sign into uh, AA or any other kind of support group, the first step is to acknowledge that there is an issue that needs to be addressed, that there is something that uh, is causing us pain, that is causing us suffering. And so just acknowledging that suffering does exist, and it's not taboo, it's not wrong to suffer, it's just not what we want, that it's not, uh, it doesn't reflect negatively on who I am as a person. Uh, even that idea that somehow to suffer is wrong or to suffer is unnatural is, uh, that comes from so much habitual tendencies and, uh, and cultural emphasis, hiding our suffering away, hiding the process of old age, sickness, and, and death away. We tend to hide these things behind advertisements and products, and uh, and we don't acknowledge those points head-on because they're uncomfortable. But sometimes it's good to be uncomfortable if it inspires us to do something more. Distractions just lead us down a path of distraction where we do not address the underlying issues of our life until we are forced to, or it is too late to really do anything about it. And so those first teachings of the Buddha on the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the cause of suffering, um, the cause of suffering not being outside of us, but the cause of suffering really being the neurotic, subtle attachment to the sense of self, being the cause of all suffering, the cause of all of our negative emotions. All anger comes from the attachment to the sense of self. All uh, avarice and greed comes from the 
attachment to self, uh, not, it's not just having a self, it's the attachment to the self. And the way that we can be free of that cause of suffering is to extend our care to other people, to extend our concern, which is usually reserved just for ourself and our own idea of who we are, to extend that uh, outwards and to loosen the grasp that is how we can let go of the, the cause of suffering. And as we let go of the cause of suffering, because suffering is conditioned, then once we have opened ourselves up enough, there is no more basis for suffering. But it does take that first look. It does take that first internal inquiry. And this all comes from Buddha Shakyamuni, uh, formerly Prince Siddhartha, 2,500 years ago. This is really the start of uh, all Buddhism. And it's something that I come back to over and over again. It seems to be the simplest of teachings, but is really one of the most profound. And it's something to touch in with for myself again and again. And it renews my motivation to be a kind person because letting go of any attachment I have or neurotic cherishing and protecting I have to my sense of self, although it might seem counterintuitive, that is actually what causes suffering in my life. And to open that attachment up and being kind to other people and being compassionate to others and to not have that uh, neurotic possession of me and mine and to feel empathy and sympathy and equanimity. That really is the source of so much joy that keeps me inspired and keeps me on this path, not just because of the teaching, but because after reflecting and practicing, I really feel it, my own experience. And I think that that is what keeps so many people practicing because they see it from their own experience. This isn't just something that can be told or preached and, and then there is liberation from there or there is freedom from there or, or even uh, lowering blood pressure <laughs> from there. A lot of meditation just focuses on the, the physical aspect these days lowering blood pressure and being a, a calmer person in the workplace. <laughs> uh, it's, it's with personal experience that we develop confidence. This is a self-inspired path, and thus we, we must take action ourselves with meditation, with uh, how we live in the world, and how we extend ourselves. And we'll see the benefit of that. It will, it will come up over time, and our confidence will be renewed again and again. Is there a formal practice that you've learned to help cultivate that? Mm. There are quite a few practices which are, are wonderful. Maybe one of the most simple practices is 
There are a couple. <laughs> I don't. One of the the most simple practices is tonglen, and I pause because tonglen uh, is sometimes misunderstood. Uh, tonglen is the practice of taking on someone else's position, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, in order to wish them well. It is the exchanging of self and other. So. There are several different stages, and there are many great books on uh, Tonglen. Uh, I know that uh, Anitama Chodun has a book on Tonglen, uh, which I think is quite nice. And there are quite a few copies uh, from different authors coming out of Shambhala publications, which are nice. But the basic premise is that when we breathe in, we take away the suffering of others. And then when we breathe out, we send them happiness. And it is just that basic motion of breathing in and breathing out that we can take the suffering of others and send them joy. Misconception around this is often that that means we have to beat ourselves up. And, and that's really not the case. This isn't a practice of self-deprecation or, uh, or anything like that. It's just a matter of being or, able to exchange our positions. Or even, and, or even taking on their suffering on top yes, of our... Yes, taking on their suffering. On it's, top of all not our own suffering. Yes. And that's not something that we have to do, necessarily. It's a stage to work up to. Um, it, it seems intimidating because I don't want more suffering. <laughs> that's, a, that's a natural reaction to hearing that practice. And uh, certainly I don't want more suffering. But, you know, if I am to have a headache and this headache's not going away, may I take on the headache of all beings so that they do not have to feel this, this pain but uh, since I'm already feeling it, let me take that pain away from others. Or just to exchange ourselves with someone else who is having pain, the same kind of pain that we feel, so that we are not so self-focused in our own situation, even if we're not going to take on the pain of everyone to at least form the connection and put ourselves in someone else's shoes. There are a few stages of Tonglen practice, and so I don't want to give the indication that we're just heaping all the world's suffering upon our own backs and, until we crumble. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not what the practice is about. So uh, sometimes it can be intimidating at first, but it's really just the exchange of self and other. And they're different approaches to Tonglen. The first mm-hmm. the first approach that I I learned was when I was experiencing a particular form of suffering was to to realize that there are millions of people all over the world that are also experiencing this just as I am, if not more so. And when mm-hmm. I when I would consider that that would 
shift my attention from just myself to including the whole world and then even perhaps extending it beyond that if appropriate or if it fit yes that's that's one of the great practices and there are a few different levels um, that accommodate to how comfortable someone is with the practice and breaking habits is uh, often uncomfortable. It's maybe even sometimes the definition of uncomfortable, uh, coming out of the comfort zone. But it's not. Uh, it's not meant to be a harsh practice uh, with oneself or, or anyone. So you you talked about habits and breaking habits, and it seems that the core of that, or or at least the the most challenging aspect of that is our habits of thinking, particularly the ones that we haven't gotten around to questioning or never learned the importance of, of questioning or even considered that it was worth questioning or that we could even question them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Growing up in different situations or in a contemporary culture or with certain family values and emphasis, we do tend to pick up views or styles of thinking, which, while not necessarily negative, are not always examined. Certainly, I, I didn't question so many parts about being a Buddhist growing up in a Buddhist community or with a Buddhist family. But even in that context, Buddhism, uh, when I became a formal practitioner, when I really started studying uh, what Buddhism is, there is a large emphasis on being able to examine where we come from and why we we have these thoughts, why we have these uh, assumptions about the way the world works. And to examine my own biases is a, is a Buddhist practice as well, to examine my own assumptions and not to disprove things but to gain confidence in them. It's not to say that, you know, we have so many wrong views that have to be cleansed or, or purified or anything like that. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure we do, particularly in uh, how solid our sense of self appears to be. But it's really about examining in order to have direct experience, questioning in order to have direct experience so that we don't take anything for granted. When we take a close look at the world we live in and we don't take for granted how a seed becomes a tree or how um, 
farms grow food, how that food comes to our table. And we are not taking a process for granted. We're not taking cause and effect for granted. We're not taking how the world works for granted. Then there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of meaning. There's a lot of grace that comes out of that experience. Out of fully appreciating how the world works and how we work and how our mind works. Habits are conditioned behaviors, but it's also a lack of examination, a lack of appreciating our own mind. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of environmental sciences and um, so I'm a fan of uh, Michael Pollan, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma and how food comes from the farm to our table and examining that step-by-step process. I feel that it's one of those cases where we don't take a close look at cause and effect and how we are part of something so much larger and how this interconnected system, how this interconnected world is constantly present in our life and how that affects our our well-being and even how that affects our own mind. And to not take that process for granted, to not take our own internal mind for granted. I think that's the source of a lot of beauty in the world. I'm talking with Dungsala John Paul Norbu, he's part of the new generation of Tibetan Buddhist teachers, and he will be leading a weekend retreat on remaining natural in Dharma practice this coming weekend, September 28th and 29th in Versher, Vermont. And this understanding of the mind, Buddhism has been studying the mind and the nature of the mind and, and the way the mind works for, as you say, about 2,500 years. Could you talk about the mind and the nature of the mind and, and help us understand um, things from your perspective? Mm. Well, that, is, that is a deep question. <laughs> And um, it's, a, it's a question I would really love to do justice to. At the same time, I, I don't want to necessarily um, preach beyond uh, maybe my own personal experience. And I think that is the, the freedom which is offered on this particular path. But I'll say that When we consider the mind and we consider freedom, we don't, we don't always consider how vast the mind is beyond just the thoughts and the opinions and and the views that there is a great deal of freedom, a great deal of joy to be had in letting go of attachment to 
our thoughts and our views. And that can seem scary as well. Sometimes we only find freedom by letting go of what we are attached to. And that's why this path is so personal. No one can really tell you to let go of uh, attachment to the way that we think, to the views that we have. They seem to be so much a part of us, of me, of my whole identity. And I wouldn't want to force that uh, on anyone. <laughs> I wouldn't want to force anyone to let go of of their their mind or uh, or their identity or or their views. But for myself, I, I feel like as I've looked at myself and I've looked at my own natural state of mind, I've been taking it for granted all my life. And the identity that I consider to be so solid and, and real is really quite open, subject to change, subject to to fluctuation and that's how I how I live that's how my mind works the the mind is not the solid sum of its feelings and thoughts if it was then I don't think suffering could ever be overcome enlightenment is not something that is pulled from outside Enlightenment is something which is self-discovered. It is found within. And so beneath all the layers of habit and beneath all the layers of misunderstanding, the mind is naturally enlightened. The mind is naturally awake, just covered with some temporary misunderstanding that can be cut through to find that authentic state of awareness. Enlightenment is not fabricated, it is self-discovered. And it's something that only we can self-discover. The Buddha said, I cannot give enlightenment to someone. I cannot make you enlightened as if I were throwing you up into the sky like a pebble <clears throat> where you would suddenly become awakened. I can show someone the means and methods to attain enlightenment, but enlightenment ultimately depends upon you. You have to examine my words like a goldsmith examining gold. Don't just take it for granted because... I am a teacher or I am the Buddha that my words are totally correct. This is something you must see for yourself. This is something that you must have confidence in yourself. And I take those words to heart. And as I have gained more experience on this path and I've come to get little glimpses of the nature of my own mind, beyond just the mere identity that uh, I 
tend to hold on to. There is a lot of freedom and a lot of open awareness there beyond anything I could have seen before. And so I encourage everyone, whether they have a leaning towards Buddhist philosophy or not, to self-reflect, to at least take time to examine one's own mind and to make friends with that mind and to learn to enjoy our own mind without seeking external validation or, or stimulus or being afraid of our own thoughts. To accept that thoughts are thoughts and feelings are feelings and they are temporary and although they arise, they also dissipate and they don't necessarily define us or fix us in any static existence because we're not static. We're open-dimensional. We are interdependent, part of something greater. And when we find what that is, then we have a much better understanding of the nature of mind. I think you did a. Be- so that's what I would say. I think you just did a beautiful job of of explaining that, and so it sounds like what it boils down to is recognizing or acknowledging that our current sense of self is limited and it's continually changing. And where I'd like to go from here is to the the experience of you know, the direct experience that we can all have of reality as opposed to just our individual limited sense of self. And I think that that's, that's really the essence of what you were talking about, is that awakening is being able to see beyond just our, our limited sense of self to the spaciousness of, of what's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that certainly sounds, <laughs> sounds ideal. <laughs> and there's more and more talk of the experience of presence, of simple, simple presence, or however people want to use words to describe something that that really is very difficult to describe in words. Mm-hmm. It's really beyond beyond elaboration. It's not even something that we could put into words. Right. It's like that the old metaphor of pointing to the reflection of the moon in a bowl of water. Oh, yeah. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> the, we can see the moon reflected in the water, and the reflection may change, and the reflection may be there or, or not be there, but the moon is, is still always there above. 
Right. We may not always see it, but we can see the reflection of it. And even when there are clouds obscuring it, the moon is still there. Yeah. It's not, it's not out of our reach ever. It's not something that we make or, or fabricate. It's something that's just, just a little obscured. And this notion of direct experience, that's, that's something that, that I continually work to cultivate. And it's something that's, that's immediately available all the time mm-hmm. when we're not distracted. Much like observing the moon directly whether it's being, you know, when it's not being obscured or if, or if we're, you know, not, not being fooled into looking at a reflection of it. Mm-hmm. Which is essentially what language is. Language is, is a reflection of the world or an attempt to reflect that direct experience. Yeah, that is. It can give a pretty accurate description, but it is still just a reflection. Right. And it works when we're using it on a materialist level, but it doesn't work very well when we're trying to describe these more... um, intangible experiences. That's what direct perception is for, and that's why it takes so much time to realize what uh, so many great meditators have realized, because we can hear about it and we can read about it, but it's really something we have to put the time and effort in to discover for ourselves as well based on that guidance. Yes, and that's what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a journey and process of self-discovery or self-initiated discovery. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, I watched a, a video of your mother talking with Anam Tupten Rinpoche. They were talking about yeah. emptiness, and you could tell they were both really um, just utterly fascinated and engaged in this in this exploration of emptiness and and the notion, you know, that that saying emptiness is fullness and fullness is emptiness and the, mm-hmm. the paradoxical nature of this this thing that 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 is literally indescribable and yet it's something that's so juicy and so deeply fascinating that it's impossible to resist once you get a taste of it indeed she has a lot of enthusiasm for uh, emptiness and the, the teachings around emptiness. 
it's something which is so meaningful when when we take the time to fully appreciate it. And I almost hesitate to ask you to talk about it, but knowing that she is your mother and you have been exposed to it, I'm sure you've talked about it with her and and with with others. Um, Because it's such a a tricky and paradoxical thing to talk about and to understand, I would love for for you to give it a shot because you did so well on the last one. Speak about emptiness. Yes. Oh, uh, well, emptiness, and I'll just say from my from my understanding of emptiness, uh, because I will I will just speak from my personal experience. There are many great texts which uh, speak about emptiness and the egolessness of self and the egolessness of phenomena and uh, the way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva is one of those great texts. Emptiness is often misunderstood as a void or a nihilistic lack of existence. But that's just due to the English translation, which is maybe one of the closest translations which uh, can come from the Tibetan language. And emptiness refers to the lack of an intrinsic existence in any in anything. And Maybe the a better way to describe it, uh, or to add more to that description, is to say that emptiness and how all phenomena are empty is pointing out how all things are interconnected, how all things arise in dependence upon each other. We do not find any intrinsic, static, permanent, uncompounded, or autonomous thing, no matter where we look. All things are born out of relationships. All things are subject to change. And all things can be broken down into further parts. And so, when we let go of this idea of intrinsic reality, because it really is just an idea that the body we have today is the same as the body we had yesterday, that the car we drive today is the same as the car we drove yesterday, and that the car we drive tomorrow will be the same one as uh, our car today. That is really just an assumption. It is not fully appreciating how phenomena work. All things are subject to change, 
even on the most subtle, minute level, changing moment to moment uh, in ways that aren't even perceptible to our eyes. All things are compounded. Our body is made out of parts, and our those parts are made out of more parts than those Parts are made out of molecules, and those molecules are made out of atoms, and those atoms are made out of electrons and neutrons and nuclei and can be even further broken down. And we do not find any solid body. We do not find any solid singular object there to hold on to, constantly in flux, constantly changing made of so many different pieces and also not existing on its own. The body is born from the result of our parents. The body grows and develops as a result of the food we eat, the air we breathe, the land we live on, and our entire environment. If we were to look for a single body or a single object, we would have to acknowledge the fullness of the entire universe along with that body. Carl Sagan had a saying, you cannot bake an apple pie from scratch without first recreating the universe. We take for granted what uh, from scratch means. If you truly want to make a pie from scratch, you have to grow the wheat yourself. You have to grow the apples yourself. You have to um, create the sunlight yourself to grow the apples, to grow the wheat. You would have to make the water yourself. <laughs> and to make all these things, you would have to go farther and farther back and recreate the universe. The universe is in the apple pie, and the universe is within us in our body. There is no single, permanent, unchanging, uncompounded thing to find. And this is emptiness, interdependent origination. There is just nothing to hold on to as a single, disconnected, permanently enduring self or body to hold on to. And if we can acknowledge that, if we can let go of our attachment to that intrinsically geared mindset, then we don't have so much trouble letting go of things. We don't have so much trouble just being at ease in the world. So much suffering comes from the feelings of loss or the feelings of change or the feeling of being subjected to something else outside of us, something other, something external. But all those feelings of suffering are based on thoughts of intrinsic existence, an assumption that things are 
real in that sense. If we can let go of our intrinsic assumptions or assumptions of an intrinsic existence, then we actually have a lot more freedom to live without suffering, to live without fear, to live without uh, avarice and attachment. And we also allow the world and everyone around us to live with much greater freedom as well. Yes. Yes, exactly. Which may be one of the most profound and powerful ways that we can honor others and the world around us. Mm-hmm. Wow, I've, I've so enjoyed this conversation with you. Me too. This has been quite a pleasure. Yes. And you're, you're leading a, a, a weekend retreat this coming weekend titled Remaining Natural in Dharma Practice. Could you, could you talk about that and give, give the details and how people can, can find out more about it and where, where to get that information, the logistics and everything? Well, the teaching will be given at the Pema Urso uh, Meditation Center in uh, southern Vermont, in Verscher, Vermont, uh, not too far from the town of Hanover. It is a Mangla Shibuti Center. That is our um, Sangha name, passed down from our uh, root teacher, Dilgo Kensar Bachet. And you can find more at our website, mangalashributi.org. I'll attempt to spell that out. That's M-A-N-G-A-L-A-S-H-R-I-B-H-U-T-I dot org. And we'll be speaking about the... Uh, about remaining natural in Dharma practice. And remaining natural is such an integral part of all meditation. To be able to rest with the mind as it is naturally and not fabricate or draw in any other um, distractions or influences, but to fully appreciate the mind as it is. It, that is a great part of all Dharma practice. But it is also hard to know what is the natural mind, because we have so many tendencies and habits which distract us and keep us caught up in worldly life. So that in order to break those habits, we must put in a lot of effort, effort which can often seem unnatural. Breaking habits uh, doesn't feel natural. It feels more natural to just be habitually motivated. But it is those habits which actually prevent us from seeing our unnatural state of mind and experiencing that natural state of freedom. So that's what we will be getting into during this weekend program, 
And I believe there is more information on the website and ways to register. And I hope to see see people there. So it sounds like the mind, you know, to use a, a metaphor here, since that's about all we can use for something like this, that the mind is kind of like the water that fish are swimming in, that that they probably take for granted because it's always there. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a good metaphor, yeah. Like the space, <laughs> like the space that surrounds everything in our day-to-day experience that we also tend to not acknowledge or be consciously aware of because it's always there and, and we're and we're just observing all the things within the space. Mm-hmm. That sounds quite good. The appreciating the space. Yes. <laughs> appreciating the space that uh, we we naturally have access to, which is the natural state of mind, that open awareness, the appreciation of uh, not just the space, but also the the openness of how all things manifest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I love talking about these Me? things. Me <laughs> too. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Be well, and thank you again so much. Thank you. All the best. That was Dungse Jampal Norbu. He's part of a new generation of Tibetan Buddhist teachers. His mother is an American longtime student of Tibetan Buddhism. His father, Zigar Kontrol Rinpoche, is Tibetan. And Dungse will be leading a weekend retreat on remaining natural in Dharma practice this coming weekend, September 28th and 29th in Verscher, Vermont. The contact information is 802-333-4521. And their website is www.mangalashributi.org. M-A-N-G-A-L-A-S-H-R-I-B-H-U-T-I dot org. And the future never comes. What? And the future never comes. What comes is always here now. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that movement also for worrying. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that movement also for worrying. One now, another now, wherever you are, it will be here and now. One now, another now, only one moment. Because of your habit of worrying
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>